Welcome back to another episode of the Rankable Podcast. My name is Garrett Sussman of Rank, and I am excited. The context of this conversation is a little bit risky because we recorded this episode about a week ago, but in the world of generative AI, anything that we say is speculative and may have changed since the recording. So today I'm joined by none other than Kristen Tinsky. Kristen's the founder uh, and the SVP of creative at Fractal, which is this awesome boutique growth agency marketing Marketing agency based in Delray Beach. Uh, they specialize in organic search, content marketing, digital PR, like such an expertise there. She helps brands like create and promote data-driven content that provides value for their audiences and yields consistent and high levels of success. If you don't follow her on LinkedIn, you probably want to do that because she is cranking out these amazing marketing automation GPT-4 scripts. She's been doing it for the past year, and each one is just more impressive, layered on top of each other. And... If she's not busy enough, she's also launching um, Lead Time, which is going to be in beta, inviting a select group of users over the next uh, month or so, really going hard in 2024. And what it does is it taps into AI-powered PR for lightning-fast journalist discovery, precise pitch crafting, and outreach to over 50,000 journalists. So AI, PR, watch out. Kristen, it's a mouthful, but thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Garrett, that was an amazing intro. Thank you so much for having me. I, I was excited to talk to you. Well, I so I'm hyped up. So we are yesterday when we're recording this. Yesterday was OpenAI's Dev Day. You've been heads down in everything from all the way back to GPT two, um, but the past year has been a whirlwind. And I just I want to get your perspective first. What the past year has been like from your perspective of someone who is kind of old hat at this, and also what you what you thought about yesterday. So let's start with this last year. What's it been like for you? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I mean, I think even people who have been involved in seeing what's happening with generative AI since GPT two or even earlier with like Word to Vec and some of these other you know pre transformer types of architectures could see the progression, could see the pace of change. Um, but still, I think, you know, chat GPT, GPT 3.5, Turbo, and then GPT 4 on top of it all, surprised almost everyone with its capabilities. Um, I, I don't think that it was intuitive, certainly to people who are sort of on the periphery like me, you know, looking at how generative AI intersects with marketing. I don't think it was super apparent, but I don't think it was even really super apparent how performative these models would be to the people who are creating them. I think it surprised a lot of people how far you can push transformers with just lots and lots of training and compute and lots and lots of data. And, uh, you know, it's, I, it's still not entirely clear where the end of this is, you know, how, how much more data could you give it how much more training could you have it do and what new abilities might emerge from that? There have been many abilities that GPT-4 has that people assumed were not possible for transformers to have. Um, and it, it's sort of a weird position that we're all in because we don't deeply understand how these transformers are doing what they're doing. We understand the architecture, but the model weights inside of them, there's a lot of uh, mystery about how they are really learning specific concepts, especially, you know, as these models get larger, the more complex arguments they're able to understand and grok. And so it's, I don't know, maybe this seems hyperbolic, but it's almost like talking with an alien intelligence in some ways, because 
of the unpredictability of it and the capabilities of it make it feel magical in a way that no technology I've interacted with feels like. So super exciting, a little scary. Um, It also feels like the beginning of the internet sort of because this, this technology is so transformational that it's going to disrupt many, many industries, maybe all industries in time. And working in marketing and PR and SEO, these are some of the first industries that it will impact in a major way. And so that's really exciting for me to be able to explore uh, what the applications are, what the limitations are, and uh, hopefully be predictive about where it's heading. So, yeah, it's super exciting, a little scary. (laughs) I was going to say, it's it's weird because we're in this weird time where you can very easily overestimate the capabilities and underestimate it at the same time. Like for people who, who don't necessarily understand, like obviously there are limitations, but even those limitations are starting to be removed, you know, as we, you know, we were were talking right before, like the retrieval augmented generation, the ability for these large language models to actually connect to knowledge graphs and the internet and pull information. So there's less and less factual inaccuracies they still exist and there's still biases and there's a lot of problems there but it's going in the right direction as a marketer you start playing around with like gpt 3.5 you know last year what were some of the things that you were most excited about and what were some of the ways that it surpassed your expectations um i i think Sorry, Dan just walked in for a second. I don't know if you can cut that out. Um, You're good. Surprise. I mean, a lot of ways. I, I think ChatGPT was a, a pretty big advancement over the Da Vinci models, which came previously. Um, their capabilities in, in terms of writing human level content, I mean, basically being able to pass the Turing test at least within, you know, certain structures and like small context or, you know, a short conversation. I I don't think people really expected that, you know, some of the things that previous models had really struggled with, like addition or, uh, you know, writing poetry or things like that, telling jokes, those sorts of things became like emergent capabilities that this model can now do. And I, I think that was surprising to a lot of people, but also, with the the arrival of ChatGPT, I think it became clear, at least to me and I think to a lot of other people, that these were ready for being used in processes internally in an agency or really any work product. Um, and yes, there, there still are a lot of limitations and caveats to that, but immediately you can start using it for things that, like creative ideation, for instance, which... Um, you know, can immediately 10x your output. So to me, that was probably the most exciting part. So yesterday we had the first OpenAI Dev Day and they released a lot of new features. And so we're still kind of diving into this, trying to understand it. They didn't release everything, but can you kind of go down and and kind of share some of your biggest takeaways and what you saw yesterday that that really gets you excited? Yeah, I mean, from for me, besides the price reduction in GPT-4 API calls, which I think is like two or three x cheaper, um, the most exciting part to me is the context window on 
the GPT-4, I guess they're calling it turbo model. So it should be faster for generation, but um, also 125,000 tokens up from some people had access to the 32K token model, but a lot of people didn't. So below that, it was either 16K with 3.5 turbo or 8K, I think, with GPT-4. So, you, I mean, you're talking about like you know, more than 10 times the amount of information that can fit in a prompt plus response. Um, that is insanely exciting to me. Uh, that was sort of what had kept me involved with and excited about Claude 2 from Anthropic because mm-hmm. they had a model that was maybe around GPT 3.5 quality um, that had a 100K context window, which is a big deal. I think context window is a huge deal, really, because it it the limitation is how much information you can fit in a specific prompt and the generation associated with it. And the more information you can you can have in a single query, the more use cases open up to you. So especially around like pulling information out of a large corpus. Um, with the smaller models that had smaller context windows, you needed to do a lot of like very frustrating and often um, degrading the quality of your outputs because you had to sort of pick and choose what information you're including in the prompts. And so for things like summarization of long documents, you have to chunk it, split it up, do it piecemeal, and you sort of lose some of the magic of being able to give a model everything at once and having it evaluate on that entire corpus versus a subset of it. And yeah, so I I haven't played with the 125,000K context windows, so maybe next week when this is released, I'll have some more details on it it's not it's not clear to me exactly what that means in the 125k context window because they could be doing some sort of trick in the background sort of where the the actual context window is smaller and then they're doing chunking behind the scenes um i haven't seen any evidence of that i've just heard some rumors that that may be the case but my hope is that it's like a true 125k context window and then you could essentially give it a book and it could write you a master thesis level analysis of that book, essentially. It's it's really cool, the potential. And I think that as in the mainstream media, as generative AI and these tools become more accepted, more businesses are starting to adopt it. I know, you know, both your agency and here at IPO Rank, we we talk to our businesses about using generative AI in their content. How are you guiding clients and prospects around like really adopting this technology? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's still a lot of risk involved for companies who are deciding they want to utilize generative AI in their content creation for whatever purpose. Um, you need to be careful still because Google is, you know, still the most important thing in this case, right? Like this is where the the organic search traffic comes from. And I I think we'll continue to for quite a while, maybe in different sorts of variations and incarnations, but Google search is still extremely important. You don't want to get on the wrong side of Google. You don't want to be penalized for low quality content. 
Um, I think what matters to Google ultimately is having the best possible result for any given query, and which typically means the, the most unique and useful and comprehensive information that you could get. So the way that I think about generative AI and content creation is really around information gain. Um, if you're going to be using generative AI, a prompt, a single prompt and a single response even even if you're using a 125,000 context window that can give you a 20,000 word article at the end, it's it's probably not going to be what you need in order to rank consistently well in Google. It's probably not going to give you enough um, information gain, right? Like real value added to the conversation of whatever the topic is that you're creating content around. So yeah, the guidance really is if you're going to create content with generative AI, then it needs to be done in a more sophisticated way than just prompt and response. I think it's important to create a system that is using external information as a source of truth and that the content you're creating is built up iteratively through a number of steps where the generative AIs are refining, researching, aggregating that research, contributing that research to a plan, and then writing the content from the plan so that you can do something much more sophisticated than like the typical approach, which is just write me an article on X topic, take the topic and publish it. Um, I think people who are doing like the more simplistic version of that and not really caring a lot about adding a tremendous amount of value through their content, through whatever generative AI approach they're using. I think the people that are doing it in the more simplistic way are the ones that will run into trouble depending on the volume they're doing it at, you know, how many of their pieces of content on their site are, generative AI created versus human created, what the sort of trust and authority of their site already is, what their inbound link profile looks like. Um, so I'm sure there are a lot of factors that will determine, you know, who gets penalized for generative content and who doesn't. Um, the weird thing is I don't think Google currently is or may ever be capable of identifying like an individual piece of AI created text content. I think, you know, their attempts at it, even, even open AI's attempts at it have been, you know, pretty poor, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, for something like that to actually work, especially inside of like a search algorithm or where you're, you're deciding whether or not to like nuke a site based on this, you need a, a high level of accuracy or else you're going to have all these false positives and false negatives. And if you're at only at 80 or 90% accuracy, and you can, you know, you can give one of these identification models like the Declaration of Independence and it thinks that it's AI generated, like that's a big problem, right? So I, I think Google will, they, I think they are looking, I think they do have internal aspects of their algorithm that are looking for generative content, but I don't think that they'll be deciding on like an individual piece of content basis. I think they'll be looking across like large blocks of content to see you know, was this AI-generated content identifier triggering on every piece of content on a site, or was it a piece here, a piece there? And then you can build up some expectation of, okay, maybe this entire site is generative AI because we got, you know, a huge volume of the content on the site was identified as that. And then you can be more certain than if you're just looking at a single piece of content. So, yeah, I mean, if, if you're thinking about creating generative written text content, think about information gain, think about value add, think about EAT or EEAT. Um, 
And then, yeah, be careful about the proportion of your entire site that is using generative content. And um, yeah, be a little brave because it's still very much up in the air, I think. Yeah, it's, it's so early. The thing that gets me so excited, especially as we see the incorporation of multimodal, so the ability for these LLMs to take in not only text, but like images and videos, I can imagine, like to your point about information gain, for those who aren't familiar, that's just like new information. When you're looking at search results page and you're seeing the same information of every article, the, per, the article that actually produces produces new, real, helpful information is going to go to the SERPs is like incorporating subject matter expertise through a video interview, a podcast interview like this, and then taking that information and then weaving it into the generative AI. So to your point, it has that source of truth. It's still not as hard to write as like a deeply researched, intense article, but it it feels a little more unique, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are now, um, some new ways that you could really use generative AI to, to almost create a pipeline for creating like a, almost like a piece of data journalism content. Um, so actually I'm not, I'm not sure about yesterday's announcement, but I think like the code interpreter piece of chat GPT is a really amazing piece of technology in my mind, because you can do it works towards this goal of information gain, right? Like being able to present something entirely new because Code Interpreter can take a data set and do the data journalism work on it essentially where it's downloading the data, cleaning it, um, making it ready for analysis, deciding what sort of analysis it wants to do on it, and then writing the Python code to actually generate the data visualizations, looking at what the results of those are aggregating them or pulling out the most important or salient pieces of information that was found in the data set. And so you can imagine a pipeline where you have GPT-4, um, Code Interpreter, or there's actually some open source versions of it that you can use. Um, and then we haven't really covered agents yet, but agents are essentially wrapping GPT-4 API calls in um, like an organization where GPT is making decisions about what to do next. And so you can imagine creating like a, a process or an architecture for part that's being GPT-4 is writing part of it. GPT-4 is doing data analysis and data visualization. And then there are agents that are sort of combining these things together into a, you know, like a long form article that has some data analysis of some existing or scraped data set and then you're getting closer to approaching like what Fractal is doing for our clients with humans, um, where you're really trying to tell it like a new story that right, that information gain is is coming from the data set that you're doing analysis on, and then it's being weaved into some sort of narrative or article around that. Um, I, I think it's not that far away that generative AI will be able to accomplish a lot of this, and not perfectly. I think you still will need human oversight, but um, yeah, I'm incredibly excited about like the combinations of of multimodal stuff. So being able to automatically inject images that you're generating with Dolly three on the fly, that you're asking GPT four to to maybe like if you're having it write a long form article and you're also asking it every paragraph or so, give me a prompt for uh, an image, and then you have a loop that's generating an image and inserting it into the article as you're going, and then as you know, a next stage you have. In a, an open interpreter call or 
uh, you know, way of doing data analysis and data visualization, and then you're injecting that into an article. So yeah, with these multimodal approaches, you can get much, much further. And the final product isn't just a long piece of text. It's, it's a piece of text with images, maybe with data visualizations in it too. And then later on, you can bolt on even more than that, right? Like you could imagine a pipeline that takes that final product and, uh, you know, uses like a digital twin. Um, so like Synthesia is a really interesting company and 11 labs for voice cloning and, uh, Hey Jen, just another one that does like mm-hmm. automatic video translation. So like this, this pipeline of content creation, where you are creating a very sophisticated piece of content, but then at the very end of it, you're then translating that across lots of different mediums. You know, maybe you're turning into a podca- podcast automatically with the, um, voice cloning through 11 labs. You're translating it into a hundred languages with Hey Jen. You're using Synthesia to create TikTok videos and Instagram reels from that content automatically with like a digital clone of you that can also speak a hundred languages. I mean, you can sort of see where it's going and the permutations of combining these technologies together in new ways to create, uh, you know, very complex and sophisticated content creation pipelines and systems that can very closely replicate what you would have a human doing. So, actually, actually, it's it's funny you mention it. Confession: you haven't been talking to Garrett the whole time. I've actually been a combo of Hey Gen, <laughs> Eleven Labs. <No. laughs> but you're right; it's it's all there, seen it firsthand. And what you're saying about the code interpreter, which is now like I think like data analysis. Um, I was doing it the other day with a survey that we did, and a bunch of people put in like times in different formats, and it cleaned that data for the hours and minutes, so it's actually correct. And then. You know, it's it's creating graphs using you know the the colors and the logo. Like it it doesn't look great yet, but it's it's there. The question I'd ask for you is, how trustworthy are these results? Because you know we talk about like hallucinations with just factuality. <laughs> if you're using something like you know data analysis, can you trust the results, or do you really need like to have those data analyst skills to be able to review everything still? Yeah, I mean it's a really good question. I. I think at this point you really should have those skills yourself because you need to you need to look at the code that it's writing to do this data analysis, right? Like if it's if it's cleaning dates or times or whatever for you, you should look and see if it did that properly, right? Like you're, there's no other way to know if it did it. Well, there might be, but there's probably not another way to know if it did it properly unless you actually look at the Python code that it wrote to do that cleaning, and. So you need to understand how that Python code would work. I mean, you could you could certainly have another instance of GPT open in another window, take the code that it wrote and ask GPT, like, tell me how this code works and is this doing it properly? So you could, I guess, probably build in intermediate steps where you have like a, an agent type system where you have one creating the code, doing the analysis, and then a second one that's sort of overseeing it and validating it. Um, but for now, yeah, it's certainly helpful to know how the code works that's being written to do the data cleaning, to do the analysis. And then also, you know, at least a strong enough background to be able to identify like major mistakes, to understand the, any sort of more complex statistical analysis that it might do on your data. Um, and to and to be able to provide its suggestions along the way of, you know, can you explore the data further in this direction or that direction? Or can you do further cleaning in this way or that way? Or can we add an additional data set to be able to provide a, a new perspective on this? So, 
yeah, humans aren't totally out of the picture yet. I think they're, they're still very, especially the more sophisticated and multi-step a process is, the more human is currently needed. Exactly. I, I think to that point, just the way you talk through it, at least not in the immediate, immediate future, who knows, give it a year and it might not be the case. No, but like, I think we do need that foundational knowledge to run the system, if you will, until the system runs itself. These podcasts are dangerous, Kristen, because you and I, like we geek out over this stuff. You and I could probably talk for like another like three hours about all the fun things that are happening. For that, actually, uh, for that reference, I'll include in the description notes, check out uh, Kristen's interview with the Voices of Search podcast. You did like a two back to back there um like oh, last year or, or earlier in the year um which was a great listen um but before we wrap up here are there any like what are your your predictions over the next 12 months like wild yeah. and tame um uh, I, I mean it's, it's really hard because things are moving so quickly i mean with OpenAI releasing this big update yesterday I don't expect to see anything major from them for six, eight months, probably. Um, but in the meantime, there'll be a lot of other companies that are trying to play catch up. So like we saw, uh, Elon Musk came out with a model a few days ago. I mean, it, does, it just seems like a me too thing from my perspective, but I guess it was trained on Twitter data. So I don't know what that does. Maybe makes like a very angry and violent AI. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think we're going to see Anthropic come out with something new. I think we'll we'll see companies that we haven't even heard of yet that will be releasing either customized versions of models or um, you know things that are attempting to compete with the biggest players. Um, I think we'll we'll continue to see a ton of changes from Google Search and the way that it works and the way that they integrate generative AI into the search process. Um, I don't know exactly how much it will change. I, I suspect it will change a little less than people might think. I think that they will be pretty careful with their the business model that makes them all their money. Um, to their detriment or not, I'm not sure. Um, I think open source models will continue to blow everyone away with uh, the technology that they're developing to create much smaller models that are as performant as you know, at least some of the earlier GPT models. I think we'll see unrestricted models that don't have like the guardrails that the the commercial models have. That's scary. Yeah, it's <laughs> a little scary because I, I think as as those open source unrestricted models start to reach the performance of three point GPT three point five or GPT four, they become a lot more dangerous, I think. And they can do things that, you know, the OpenAI API would have not allowed you to do. And so I think you'll see, yeah, bad actors utilizing those sorts of things more. But that's that's not to say that I'm against open source models. I think that we need to have them. Um, I think there'll just be some, maybe some interesting or slightly scary news stories around how some of these open source unrestricted models are being used and what the implications of that might be. Um, I think from like a, a marketing, content marketing, SEO and PR perspective, I think the industry is going to continue to shift incredibly rapidly, uh, especially around internal processes for content creation, internal processes for research, internal processes for outreach. And, and I think we'll see the most, uh, I guess, advanced or forward thinking companies 
looking for any and every way that they can integrate these technologies into their existing workflows and trying to find new workflows and processes that leverage these technologies to enable them to do things that they couldn't do previously, including a lot of the things that we've talked about. Um, I think people will still need to be pretty careful around going like full force on pure generative AI content. Um, but I do think people will start doing it in, in much greater quantities than they currently are. Um, I think we'll start to see like a, a much bigger rise in like digital twins. So we're sort of like on the cusp of the, them being indistinguishable from, you know, an actual video. Slightly uncanny. Yeah. Yeah, slightly uncanny. I think as, as we eventually cross that threshold fully, where it becomes difficult or impossible to tell if something is, a, you know, a video of you or someone else. And I think that's true of like the Hey Gen stuff for the, the translational, like the language translation stuff. So I, I think that'll be adopted extremely widely and you'll see a, a huge boon to content creators because they can now distribute their content internationally in a way that they never really could. Um, yeah. I don't know if like the digital twin or digital clone thing will get to the point where people are using it to replace them in their YouTube series or something. Probably not, but over the next couple of years, very possibly, um, I think text to video generation will, will have like its, uh, image end moment. So like the moment where people truly realize how disruptive it will be. Um, I think like runways version two is sort of like the first hints of that. It's, it's like what mid journey was when it first came out or what Do the first dolly was like when it first came out, like you could see where it was going, but it wasn't quite there yet. I think over the next year or two years, we'll start to see models that can do much, much more in terms of video generation from a single prompt. And we'll see an explosion of that type of content as well. I think music generation also, I mean, could very well be disrupted in a huge way. There's already lots of companies that are doing things like making beats automatically with AI or being able to extract uh, like a voice from a concert or like a full piece of music or pull out the instrumental pieces of it. So, yeah, I mean, I think that industry will be changing incredibly rapidly and individual content creators will have this huge new suite of tools that will allow them to do so much more. I think that's also true in, in video games because you have these new models that can do text to 3D or like text to 3D models that can then, then be used in video games. You have generative AI being incorporated into video games with like creating NPCs that are powered by GPT-4 and can have like full length conversations and you can imagine them being integrated in more sophisticated ways in, into like RPGs and having the world feel really alive in a way that it, it never has before. Um, I think generally can also be incorporated into video games that are doing like a, like an automated procedural generation sort of thing where you can create, you know, very large dynamic worlds that, maybe are being created on the fly even or close to that. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think I just covered a ton of territory, but it's, it's nuts. The potential is incredible. And I think, you know, my big takeaway from you is one, it'll be very interesting to watch the media narratives over the next years with any like big events happening with releases or bad actors. I think in terms of your own personal 
place in this this new world it's still you still need creativity and foundational knowledge to be able to want want to run these sorts of things and come up with it and ultimately things are going to move fast we're not there yet it's at the beginning of a much bigger process but everything's going to be disrupted no one is safe if you will and uh yeah it's just going to be it's it's fun to be a part of this ride yeah it definitely is i no one is safe but i I think for the people that strikes fear into the people who are safer are the ones that learn these technologies and look forward to and, and try and invent the future themselves. Right. This this is like the beginning of the open internet um, where we can't see what it will eventually become, but we know that it's changing incredibly quickly and the people who can leverage these technologies are the ones that will reap the benefits of them. Um, So yeah, my advice to people is, don't be, try not to be scared of it. Try and be excited about it because the people that are able to leverage them properly will be 10 X producers, hundred X producers versus people who are not utilizing them. And I think that will be the, the biggest immediate change is the difference between people who are leveraging these technologies and those who are scared of them or don't want to interact with them. Exactly. And it doesn't need to be code. It's just, you know, you, they're going to, things are going to get easier and easier to interact with as well. Um, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't like train your critical thinking and actually try to get smarter and read stuff and experience things. Okay. Um, I, do, I could talk to you forever about this, but let's do some rapid fire rankings. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Putting the music on, putting some time on the clock and we're going to dive in. Rank your top three of something, anything that you love most in the world. Oh my God. This is hard. This is, I should have prepared for this. <laughs> what, what, what are those big three core things that you just love? Uh, this sounds really sappy, but my, my daughter and my wife, Kelsey, and running a family business. Maybe that sounds really sappy, but yeah, I I love being able to be creative and build something with the people that I love and for my hard work to reward my family and, and to be able to work in an industry that is really exciting to me in a time that's so transformational and special. And I think for people of my generation, like millennials, slightly older millennials, we felt like we sort of missed out on the magic of the very early internet, or at least at least being able to be professionals in that space and take advantage of some of the amazing things that were happening then. Um, it almost feels like that again, but now you know I'm an, an adult who can fully understand it and hopefully make an impact. Not sappy, I love that. Okay, rank your best SEO or marketing win. SEO and marketing win. That's interesting. Um, So I I think I have talked about this before, maybe on another podcast, but um, around the time of the the whole George Floyd situation that happened, everyone was feeling incredibly frustrated and like they wanted to contribute in some way to this obvious and massive issue of police brutality and bad behavior. And I had serendipitously maybe in a few months prior to that, been working on a content idea for a site that Fractal owned called lawsuit.org. Um, just trying to come up with something really interesting and newsworthy. 
I had realized just through some other fractal work that my local um, county has a database of like all arrest and traffic stop records, um, which to me was sort of fascinating because you could use it as a data set to, to really more deeply understand what's happening in your particular county and how the police are interacting with uh, the population. So who they're arresting, where they're being arrested, what is the meta information of the people who are being arrested and so on. And so we undertook like this relatively large scraping project to try and get all of the data that we possibly could from Palm Beach County um, and then look at it, you know, see what are the cops doing? Like, are there weird anomalies? Are there like individual officers that have 5X number of arrests of African-American people than they should? Um, and we did find a, a few anomalies. Like there were some interesting things here or there. Um, nothing like super groundbreaking, but it ended up being a proof of concept that like you could theoretically scrape a county's police data, arrest data, traffic data, and find bad actors or find situations that were, you know, there could potentially be something wrong there. And so I published this on Hacker News and um, Reddit in a few different places. And that particular piece of content ended up doing really well. It, it got some press, but it, the biggest thing was that it got a lot of attention on Reddit. And I think it was because it was coinciding with the, the George Floyd situation and people just felt like they really wanted something to contribute to, but they couldn't think of anything that would be tangible. And so I posted on Reddit, hey, like, what if we tried to do this for every county? Like, what if it wasn't just Palm Beach County? What if we could build a system that aggregated all of the county level information across all the police departments across the United States to be able to allow citizen journalists and regular journalists and anyone else who wanted to explore like their locales, police activity and, and data, uh, could that be done? And yes, it can be done, but it's a very involved and very large process because it has to be done for every county and every county has their own system for making that data available online. And a lot of the systems are antiquated and difficult to scrape. And so the idea was starting like an open source sort of nonprofit situation for trying to do that, to, to write scrapers for all of these locations, to build a corpus of um, you know, the locations of where this data exists in every county and to have sort of like a political motivation to, to, to push this idea that we need better access to information that is already public um, so that we can analyze it in a more complex and deep way. And so that it sort of just snowballed and uh, the post on Reddit went viral and we directed people to a Slack group where like 2,500 people joined in a few days. And then it sort of just self-organized from there, like with very little input from me uh, past like the first few weeks. And it turned into a community. And then um, we very luckily got connected with a, a law firm that wanted to help us turn it into a nonprofit. It got turned into a nonprofit, and then it got $250,000 in funding. And now it's now it's a, like a legitimate nonprofit um, that I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day work. And I, really, I have very little that I did for it beyond the initial inception of the idea. Um, but but yeah, it's, it's actually working toward that goal of making police data um, more available, easier to understand, and, and then That's ultimately allowing people to 
understand what's going on more. That's incredible. That might be the, the, the best marketing win that I've ever heard on this podcast. That is the coolest thing I've ever, that's cool. That is so cool that that turned into that. Um, okay. M- moving on. Rank your top. I don't know how you could top it. That's so cool. Rank your top three SEO tools. Oh God. Um, well, first I should mention that the, the nonprofit is called the police data accessibility project. If anyone wants to check it out, we'll have a link in the uh, description notes for sure. Um, tools. I, I mean, I think the biggest players are hard to get around. So like SCM rush and Ahrefs for, for SERP data, um, SERP API and like there are competitors for it, but SERP API is really easy to use as, as like an API to, to get, uh, search results, which I've used extensively in some of my scripts because this retrieval augmented generation is requiring some external source of data, which very often is a search result. Um, Cause then you're sort of combining the power of Google's ranking algorithm and what it can surface from the open internet with a generative model. So yeah, I would say, yeah, SEMrush, Ahrefs, cause I, I think their database is quite good. Although they can get expensive. Uh, <laughs> yeah, controversial. Um, yeah, and then SERP API just because I use it so frequently, but also, um, something called Appify, which is essentially people can create their own scrapers or other automations that you can then access through Appify as an API. So it's sort of like an open source, well, really the mostly scrapers, but I've used that extensively also for things that are more difficult to do. So like scraping different social media sites, um, which are changing all the time. So like if you've ever written a scraper, you know how frustrating it can be to, to have something that's working one day and then the site that you're scraping changes the next day and it needs to be rewritten and all of that. So the benefit of Appify is that you have like individual people who are maintaining their own scrapers for different purposes. So you don't have to uh, necessarily fix a scraper that breaks, someone else is doing it, and then you're accessing it when it's fixed. And there are likely multiple different scrapers that are working and some people that are very on top of making sure whatever update happened on the site side that they're they're fixing the scraper that day or whatever. So, yeah. That's cool. Okay, that I, I hadn't heard of that. That's a cool tool. What is, uh, rank your best SEO trick or tactic? Sorry, what was the first part? Yeah, res, rank your best SEO trick or tactic. What's a trick or tactic that, that you think is the best? I mean, it sounds super biased because this is what my company does, but uh, creating content that is truly adding new and newsworthy information, which requires doing some sort of data analysis typically. I mean, it could include things like doing an interview with, with somebody really newsworthy or having a product release or announcement that's really important or newsworthy. But typically, you need to create something really that hasn't existed before and that is adding value in an entirely new way. So I think that's that's the most important thing for me. Did you, did you say three? You wanted three? No, just the one. Just the one on that one. That's great. And I am curious. So next up is rank um, what you love most about SEO. It's a tough question too. I, I love how dynamic it is. I love how quickly it changes. I, I sort of love and hate how quickly it changes. I mean, this we've been in this industry for almost fifteen years, and to see where it started and to see where it is now. 
is incredibly interesting. And I, I think what I, what I really like about it is like, although lots of techniques have come and gone as being really important to SEO or not really important to SEO, the common thread through all of it, which was talked about even very early on by people like Rand Fishkin is value, right? Like, Ultimately, we need to be aligned with what Google's trying to do here, which is create value for the searcher. And all of these hacky things and gray hat, black hat techniques that people have used to manipulate search results, ultimately, the long-term payout of them is never going to be as good as truly adding value consistently over time, building a brand based on that, and uh, yeah, con- continuing to innovate. I love it. Rank your best learning SEO resource. How do you learn SEO? What's your best resource? It, I think it depends on what stage you're in of learning. I think I think yeah. early on, um, there are plenty of, of like learn SEO resources out there by people in our industry that are well known, um, that are great for getting a handle on all of the basics of it. I think for the more advanced stuff, you're going to find the most interesting cutting edge stuff inside of closed groups typically. Mm-hmm. So like Slack groups um, or conferences or things like that. Uh, friends. <laughs> friends. Yeah. Um, it's a very close knit industry too. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think for better or worse, the, the most interesting cutting edge stuff is going to be found yeah, in like closed groups typically. I think that's good. Okay. And so to that point, this is the most unfair question, but rank the number, the top one to three SEOs or marketers that you most admire or look up to or respect. Oh my God. Um, let's see. Uh, well, I, I have to say Rand Fishkin, I think just because he was one of the first that I ever looked up to and sort of got my start or our first agency got its start after writing an article for Moz or what was SEO Moz back in the day. Um, yeah, so so him. Um, Mike King is obviously incredible. Um, and then I think, oh, Brittany. Brittany Muller. Yeah. She's absolutely amazing. I, I think she and I have very similar ways of thinking about where things are going and the work that she's doing around generative AI is inspiring to me. So speaking of education, yeah. she, yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. She, we had a great uh, episode a couple of weeks ago, which we shared on one of our, one of our Slack groups, um, that she was just kind of spouting, talking a lot about the ethics and bias with LLMs, which is a whole other can of worms. Finally rank your number one cause or charity that you'd want to promote. Um, okay. I, I mean, if you want to donate to the police data accessibility project, that'd be great. (laughs) Um, yeah, but also, also like any LGBT charity, um, we have a very like rainbow family slash company. So we need a lot of help right now. There's a lot of hate out in the world. And then of course, if you want to donate to, um, what's happening in, um, with the Palestinians and the Gaza Strip, I, I think it's very, very sad what's happening there. And so I think yeah. they need all the help they can get. 
Well, thank you so much. This has been, like I said, this is a conversation that could go on and on. It's so fascinating and so fun to pick your brain and hear your perspectives on this. Thank you so much for joining me today. If someone wants to get in touch, where's where's the best place to find you? Um, LinkedIn is where I'm most active socially. And then my email, which is Kristen with two eyes at frac.tl. Um, yeah, those are the best places. There you go. Well, thank you again for being my guest. This has been awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this stuff. So it was, it was fun to, to have a conversation. And hopefully nothing changes by the time this is published. But thank you all for listening. My name is Garrett Sussman of iPoll Rank. And then we will see you again uh, next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye.